Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, I don't know if it's all about looks all the time. I mean, it can't be all about offense. It's got to be what your whole team game. I'm not probably going to make any changes for tomorrow's game. I mean, we we played one game. I liked a lot of things in the game, and there's some things I didn't like. But, uh, you know, I think it's a little early to jump the gun already. That was Craig Berube on with the fast lane yesterday talking about what the changes will be to the lineup for tonight's matchup against the New Jersey Devils. Alongside Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. We've got Bradford Bruns back in the studio. Tanner Hendrickson is out in Nashville for the weekend. How did he get a vacation day? On Tuesday. Didn't know we were allowing for that, but apparently he found one somewhere. The Blues have made a couple of lineup changes. Oh, yeah? Have we seen Scott Perunovich get some power play one time tonight? Nope, he's not in the lineup. Oh, okay. Well, Nikita Alexandrov is probably going to jump in for somebody so that he's in the lineup to get some fresh legs. Nope, nope, not doing that either. What? Instead, what they have decided to do, Alex, according to Jeremy Rutherford, who's out at the Enterprise Center today where the Blues are taking their morning skate, they have moved Alexei Torpchenko up to the third line. All he right. He is going to be playing with... Kevin Hayes and Jakub Vrana. Jake Neighbors, of course, has been dropped down once again to the fourth line. He will be playing with Sammy Blay and Oscar Sundquist. Now, there is also a change defensively. No, it does not include Scott Perunovich. Yes, it does include Tyler Tucker coming out of the lineup, though. Nick Letty moved back up to the top pairing defensively along with Colton Pareko. Scandella bumped down to the third pairing defensively. He will be playing tonight with Robert Bortuzzo. So the big moves, you got Bortuzzo back in, Tucker out. Neighbors dropped down from the third line to the fourth line. Torpchenko going back up to the third line. Alex, your thoughts on the decisions in this lineup? Man, nothing's going to grind your gears more than the fact that Jake Neighbors is getting pushed down to the fourth line. BK is going to lose all of whatever nerves he has left the fact that Jake Neighbors is now a fourth line. We can talk about it here in a minute. I want to get your thoughts. I, I, I'm a little frustrated because we're not seeing Scott Perunovich get into this game. Like, the, the Robert Portuzo coming in for Tyler Tucker, sure. I kind of expected that to happen after Paul Bissonnette just uh, destroyed Tyler Tucker on the broadcast. Um, and the return of Craig Bruby, he's not wrong. Like, other than a couple of mistakes in the third period, the Blues did go toe-to-toe with Colorado in that game. So the top two lines make sense. My guess is you want Torepchenko up there instead of Jake Neighbors because New Jersey is a very fast team. They're just as fast as the Vancouver Canucks when you played against them. 
So you want some speed with Kevin Hayes, and you're going to have Yakub Verana and Alexei Toropchenko. Fine by me. Don't like it is what it is. I'm more frustrated that Scott Perunovich is not getting into this lineup. Okay. Because this power play is not good. It's been costing you games. Tori Krug looks to be the second power play unit guy right now. I would have had Scott Perunovich in this game. Because, one, he's played in a couple and he's been the seventh defenseman. Now, maybe I should see what they're saying and basically understand that they're saying he's not a top six defenseman for us. But your offense is bad. Your power play is even worse. This is a game that Scott Perunovich I would have thrown in there and said, you know what, let's let a Tory Krug, a Nick Letty sit up top tonight and get a different view of what's gone wrong these last couple of games, a refresh. Don't like the fact, you know, it's a contract and you're putting $6.5 million up in the press box, whatever. But this is a game you should be getting Scott Perunovich in to, to find out if he can give you any life to this offense at 5-on-5 five five and special teams. So I would have done the same thing. I also would have gone to Perunovich tonight. I would have gone with him as my third pairing defensively. I probably would have gone with him over Bortuzzo, honestly. I'm not sure this is a great matchup for Robert Bortuzzo. And Penalty kill-wise is why he's in there. Sure, that's fine. Um, you've used other guys this year on the PK, and it's at How's times that been fine. <laughs> I mean, it's been fine. Their PK hasn't been their problem. They've yeah. got one of the best goalies in the NHL, and you've always told me, Alex, as a very smart individual who certainly knows his hockey, you most important penalty killer is your goalie. And tonight they've got Jordan Bennington in net, so I probably would have gone with Perunovic in the lineup as a third pair defensively. I would have just had him skate with Nick Letty. I would have stuck with Scandella and Pareko. I thought they looked fine. Yeah, I did too. Against the Colorado Avalanche. I understand they probably want a little bit more speed. They want another puck mover there with Colton Pareko, but I think Colton Pareko has been a puck mover this year. He's not a guy that's going to exit the zone with these great passes, but He's skating with the puck really well so far this year. I think he's been excellent in that regard. So I would have just stuck with Scandella up there. But that's fine. Whatever. Uh, neither here nor there. They clearly don't believe in Perunovic the way that we want them to believe in Perunovic. My bigger issue is with Jake Neighbors. I don't understand. I just don't understand. They seem to be telling us two different messages. Because when I'm watching these games, Alex, and I'm a novice, I'm not some hockey expert that's breaking down the film on a night-to-night basis. I'm just a fan that's watching the games. And when I watch the games, I see Jake Neighbor seemingly playing exactly the way that Craig Berube has said he wants all of his guys to play. He's tough on pucks. He wins puck battles. He puts the puck into the right area. He's trying, even if he's not ex- excelling necessarily defensively, he's trying defensively on each and every shift. And he goes out there and gives you everything he's got whenever he's out there. So I don't understand why it seems to be him that ends up getting drops down to the fourth line on a regular basis. I, I don't get it. If you're going to make that kind of a move, if you're frustrated with Yakub Verana and you feel like you need more from that third line, then sit Yakub Verana, keep Jake Neighbors on that line, and either go with Blay or Torpchenko. I would go with Blay on your third line. I don't understand why we continue to do this with Torpchenko, Alex. I don't get it. At a certain point, we just have to acknowledge what players are. In Major League Baseball, when you have a guy that is just an excellent defensive shortstop, like Mason Wynn, I think what he's going to be in his career is a really excellent defensive shortstop that anything he gives you offensively is gravy. For the Houston Astros, do you think they expected offensive contributions this year from Martin Maldonado? The answer is a clear and definitive no. But they put him out there every day because they knew what he was going to provide to them behind the plate. That is what your fourth line is. Torpchenko is a more than capable fourth line player that brings speed, that brings a direct player to the net, and he brings a little bit of physicality to his game with a ton of size. That is a more than useful player on your fourth line. 
when he has been put up into your top nine, almost every time, by the end of the game, he has been replaced because he is not somebody that you could count on for more than 13, 14 minutes of the night. That's just not his role. And so I am growing increasingly frustrated by the way that A, they're utilizing Jake Neighbors this year, and B, they're trying to make Toropchenko more than what he actually is. Yeah, I mean, look, like Toropchenko, the, the, the biggest struggle for him is he just can't finish. And I mean, man, I mean, you're talking about a guy who's got the size, he's got the speed, he's got the drive to the front of the net, he's physical. He's the guy that you would want on that third line, but you need somebody to finish there. The only thought I can have with this one is the fact that they want speed on that line. I mean, it's no... It's no secret that Kevin Hayes isn't the fastest skater out there, so you want to put two guys that, that, that skate fast. The problem with the Toropchenko there is who's the puck possession guy on that team? Apparently Hayes. It, it is, but you got to have somebody else who can win those those board battles, and maybe Toropchenko can. Some we got a couple of people texting in saying Jake Neighbors is a perfectly capable fourth line that's a great fourth line to have. Yeah, but if you get down, you're not putting your fourth line out there. If you get down, you're putting your top three lines out there. Jake Neighbors is not a fourth liner, guys. It's just not. He hasn't been creating offense, and that's the other issue with Jake Neighbors playing on your third line. But I could say the same thing about Toropchenko. I could say the same yeah. thing about Yakub Verana. It's a bigger picture for this Blues team problem right now is they just don't have enough guys creating offense. So whether it's Jake It feels Neighbors like it's somebody new that's being put into the doghouse after every game. That's, that's how I feel. I feel like it is, well, tonight it was Jakub Verana that was the problem. Let's put him up into the press box. Apparently, against the Colorado Avalanche, having Jake Neighbors on the ice more than Alexei Toropchenko was part of the problem because that's what these actions are telling you. They're telling you that we think our lineup is better by playing more of Toropchenko and less of Jake Neighbors. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. It's not a message that I am receiving well. Again, I am more than open to the possibility that I am flat out wrong here because I am not a hockey expert. I am just sitting here giving you my opinion based on what I am seeing in the games. And what I'm seeing in the games is that Jake Neighbors is far from your problem. Jake Neighbors has been more than fine this year. And continuing to get him these opportunities in your top nine, I think is better for you both in the short and in the long term. How is Jake Neighbors going to become the player that we want him to be if he doesn't get those opportunities? It's like going back to what Colton Wong had when Mike Matheny was here. He would hear one thing one day, a different thing the next day, and everything, he, it was just, he was swimming in information. Mm -hmm. Randall Gritchick, one day he's in the lineup, he, str he strikes out two times, boom, he's out of the lineup the next day. He goes on to have success elsewhere because finally he's just able to play every day. That's how I feel about Jake Neighbors right now, where it's like, hey, man, put him in a role, allow him to get comfortable within that role, and let's see what it looks like 10, 15, 20 games down the road. Unfortunately for him, unfortunately for any of these other guys, until somebody proves that they're deserving to be in the top nine, they won't stay there. I mean, you're right. Like, it is a – and I don't even know if it's a doghouse thing as much as it's a, okay, well, you're not giving us that spark, so we'll put somebody up there to give some spark and try and give us a little bit more offense on the fourth line because that is something Jake Neighbors can do. If everybody was texting and frustrated just like BK right now that Jake Neighbors should be in your top nine – well, then your fourth line should be creating goals because according to a lot of fans, you got two players on your fourth line that should be in your top nine and Sammy Blay and Jake Neighbors. So that line should get some favorable matchups and create offense. Until somebody in the Neighbors, Torpchenko, Verana, Hayes, Blay conversation, until somebody actually shows like, hey, you can't take me out of this third line, then they're going to keep riding this rotating door of putting somebody up and down the same thing can be said about the top six. 
as soon as somebody shows that game-breaking ability and the ability to kind of take the game and change it, you're going to keep going back and forth. Like, this is what happens when you lack offensive consistency. Sure. I just – and, guys, I if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you know my affinity for Alexei Torpchenko. I love him. He's one of my favorite players to watch on this team because I know exactly who he is as a player. And that's why I don't want to move him up into the top nine because we know exactly who he is as a player. He's 24 years old, and he's a really good fourth-line player for you. And you just allow him to be that guy and don't ask him to be anything more. That's it. That's all I'm saying here. This is not me saying that he's a bad hockey player. He's not. He's a limited hockey player in the way that you should be utilizing him, in my opinion. And therefore, I want him to be on my fourth line and hit everything that moves. There are two guys on this team that have played on the fourth line that I think have the ability and the potential to be more than that. And they are Sammy Blay and Jake Neighbors. So if you're going to move Jake Neighbors down, if you think he just hasn't been creating offensively enough, cool, I disagree with it, but fine. Put Sammy Blay into your top nine. There was a reason why he started in your top nine this year. It's because he does have the skill, the speed, the athleticism, the ability to be a little bit more than a fourth-line player. He can create, at times, a little bit of offense. I would have gone with Blay. If you were going to move neighbors down, I would have gone with Blay over Torobchenko because I, I don't think there will ever be a time in Torobchenko's career, hopefully I'm wrong about this, but I'd be surprised, where he is expected to be a top-nine contributor for a winning yeah. club in the NHL. No, you nailed it, and you're not wrong at all with that one. Uh, somebody actually brought up a really good point that I think we also have to take into consideration. It's got to be hard right now to get combinations and some chemistry because Kevin Hayes has shown the inability to create any chemistry with any chemistry with these guys. Let me give you a scenario. By the end of this game tonight, what if Sunquist, Blay, and Neighbors is your third line? And Hayes, Verona, and Torpchenko are your fourth line. It's really, I mean, we label it a fourth line because we see the line rushes by Jeremy Rutherford and all the beat writers, but ice time is going to dictate what the what the outcome looks like. And throughout this season, Sunquist has been a part of the fourth line. But by the end of this game tonight, what if the favorable matchup is putting your fourth line against the other team's third line, and we're talking about that line playing 13 and a half minutes versus the Kevin Hayes line playing 11 minutes? All of this comes down to if you're leading or trailing in the game. If you're down by two after the second period, you're not even going to see those bottom six. It's going to be a rotating door of Shen and Thomas's line, but that's also the problem because if you can't play four lines, you're going to lose hockey games. Yeah. The, the truth is they don't have they don't have enough players to be top nine forwards. Right now, yes. That's, that's the truth. Yeah. And so when you have those kind of scenarios, it ends up in a uh, situation where you just have a revolving door going through that position. It's what the Cardinals used to have with their cleanup hitter. It was Stephen Piscotty one day. It ended up being Paul DeYoung the next day. Like it's, It was a rotating cast of characters, none of whom were actually qualified to be in that position for a winning organization. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kyler. we got Bradford Bruns back in the studio working the board for us today. Tanner Hendrickson out in Nashville for some well-deserved vacation. Not sure how he got it, but he deserved it nonetheless. He took it from you. Coming up tonight at 6 o'clock, Alex will have your pregame coverage for Blues versus New Jersey Devils. Puck drop for that one tonight at Enterprise starting at 7 o'clock. That's all right here on your home of the Blues, 101 ESPN. Coming up at about 15 minutes or so, we'll get to some NFL quick hitters. But next, there was a CBSSports.com story earlier today, Alex, on the 25 most likely trade candidates for this offseason. If you're the Cardinals, how many of the pitchers on this list would take you out of the Tier 1 pitching market? We'll talk about that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 
ESPN. Cardinals are in the market for pitching, pitching, and more pitching. But where do they get it? How do they acquire it? And who are they going to acquire? That is really the question of the day. Alongside Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're broadcasting live at the E&B Granite Studios out at the Centene Community Ice Center. The Blues are hosting Morning Skate out at Enterprise Center today. We mentioned earlier there were a couple of changes to their line. Torbchenko going to be up with the third line. He will be playing alongside Hayes and Verana. Neighbors is dropping down to the fourth line. Tyler Tucker out of the lineup today. Bortuzzo back in the, with the third pair. It'll be Marco Scandella on the third pair with Bortuzzo. Nick Letty moving up once again with Colton Pareko. On the Cardinals side of things, Alex, as we go into the offseason, we said yesterday the bare minimum that we expect to see out of this Cardinals offseason is you got to get somebody that fits into that top-tier criteria. And what we're talking about there really via the free agency market is Snell, Nola, or Yamamoto. You could also get somebody via trade, though. And earlier today, there was a piece over on CBSSports.com that mentioned the top 25 trade candidates heading into this offseason in Major League Baseball. The following pitchers were listed. Paul Blackburn, he's a pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. Tyler Glasnow, we've mentioned him a number of times. The Rays starting pitcher who is often injured but went out there, pitches like a legitimate ace. He's like Jacob deGrom light, essentially, is what you're expecting with him. Corbin Burns, who's not an option for the Cardinals. They're not going to trade him here. The Cardinals aren't going to trade what it, what it costs to get him within the division. Shane Bieber, talked about him. Dylan Cease, we've certainly mentioned his uh, candidacy a number of times. And your guy, Logan Gilbert. Yes! Those are the six pitchers that are listed among the top 25 trade candidates going into this offseason. Alex, if we assume that to be the entire list of legitimate starting pitchers that are available via trade, and I'm not sure if it is or isn't, but... Of those six, how many would take you out of the market for the top three starters being Snell, Nola, or Yamamoto? Two. And this is the understanding, like we just mentioned, Corbin Burns is not an option, so take him out. Sure. It's Dylan Cease and Logan Gilbert. Because both players I know are going to provide me innings. Both players have upside that is ace potential. Now, Dylan Cease might be a little bit more of a – work in progress for you than Logan Gilbert, but let's be honest, both of them have shown star qualities but haven't really done it on a consistent basis to say, yeah, that's our elite ace number one. But all of those guys I know are going to be available, I know are going to provide me quality innings, and I know that are going to be there for 182 games. The other ones, they're not there. Like Shane Bieber, Shane Bieber is not a top pitcher anymore. Shane Bieber at his best is probably a two and Shane Bieber also, I have to wonder if he's going to be available for me all season. Tyler Glasnow is a number one, but I'm only going to get about 100 innings out of Tyler Glasnow. So if you tell me that, hey, the Cardinals are going to trade for Paul Blackburn or Tyler Glasnow or Shane Bieber, and that's the best they do, then that's a failed offseason because that's, those are awesome pitchers to get. But who's providing the innings when one of those guys go out, Steven Matz goes out, Zach Thompson doesn't provide you the innings that you need? So I'm still going to need an Aaron Nola or a Blake Snell, although Snell's got the injuries, or not injuries, but the innings I'd be worried about, or a Yamamoto. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, the, each one of these guys comes with a different risk, right? Yeah. Dylan Cease, is, was it a one-year wonder? What, was he just a one-year guy where it all came together for him and then now you're getting him on the downside of it? 
hitters started to figure him out, and he's not going to be that pitcher again. I, we don't know, but he does throw innings. We know that's something you can expect out of him. And if he regains his form, man, that guy's a legitimate ace for you. So if you go out and get him, yeah, I could see how it would end up taking you out of the top-end pitcher market, and now you fill things out with two other really solid starters that can bolster the rotation in the middle. Logan Gilbert. I don't think Logan Gilbert's an ace. I don't think anybody would classify him as an ace. But I think he can be Aaron Nola-esque yeah. for you. A legit number one. A legitimate number two starter that masquerades as a as a one for you in in this upcoming season. So I think you can get away with that. I don't think you can do that with Tyler Glass now. I think Tyler Glass now is, I mentioned it, kind of Jacob deGrom-ish. He's not the same caliber as deGrom. deGrom is a future Hall of Famer, potentially. But when Tyler Glass now pitches, he's really, really good. He just doesn't pitch that often. He's never thrown more than 120 innings in a season. So I think it is as simple as if you don't get Cease, you don't get Gilbert via trade, you have to still get one of those guys at the top end of the tra- at the top end of the free agent market and those three players are Yamamoto, Snell, and Aaron Nola. On the relief side of things, Alex, there was a piece that came out earlier today on one of the pitchers that has already re-signed with his team. It's Joe Jimenez. He is a reliever for the uh, Atlanta Braves. He's a really good pitcher. He's also not particularly old. He's 28 years old. This past season, he threw 56 innings, had a 3-0 ERA, and struck out 12 batters per nine innings. That is exactly the profile that we were looking for here in St. Louis. I was hopeful that he was going to hit the market, and maybe he'd be somebody that the Cardinals would consider. He signed a three-year deal worth $26 million. So three years, roughly $9 million per season is what he ended up getting from the Braves. There's your market. He just set the market for the exact type of reliever that the Cardinals are going to be looking for this offseason. A few other guys that kind of fit into this criteria, Jordan Hicks, Reynaldo Lopez, Robert Stevenson, Phil Maton. Those are four guys that are very similar in terms of their profile, age, strikeouts, all of that stuff to what you saw last year from Jimenez. reason I bring this up, are you comfortable going back into that kind of free agent market? No. Getting one of the top relievers on the market, not the top. That's Josh Hader. He's going to get like $20 million a year. I don't think the Cardinals are going to be in that market. But Hicks, Lopez, Maton, Stevenson, the three-year, $8 to $10 million per year relievers, are you interested in going and getting one of those guys for the Cardinals this offseason? I'm not. I'm not because, like, how many times have we heard the three-year deals bite this Cardinals team in the rear end? And, uh, like, Jordan Hicks might be the one that's intriguing to everybody. Who's 27 years old? Fine, but, like, we've done the Jordan Hicks experience. And I know he was great where, uh, what, was Toronto that he got traded to? But, like, he's been inconsistent, and I think you're already relying on – We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think they're the one team of those ones I mentioned. I mean, you've got Colorado, Dallas, different class. Like, that's one and two. I don't see any way it's going to change in that division. But after that, the Minnesota Wild theoretically should be the third best team in that division. But they don't look like it right now, right? Like, they they look like they're dealing with some stuff, too. Um, So, you know, the Winnipeg Jets, I thought they were in a rebuild until right during whatever training camp, you get the extensions for Shifley and Hellebuck where I'm like, oh, okay, now these guys look like they've got a chance. Um, Nashville, I think, is going to be one that they're going to work extremely hard. They're trying to build something there. I don't see them kind of being that team to jump in there and grab it. I'm actually kind of concerned that the Arizona Coyotes you know, could be a team that, that jumps up and battles for a playoff spot. I, I think that that team is, 
as a team, like you guys mentioned before, they've lost so much. They they have some they have a lot of talent, and their head coach has them working their tails off. So I, I guess um, I would probably say they got as good of a chance the St. Louis Blues as anybody else out of those teams. Um, but you know, it's I mean they they certainly have the more veteran team to be able to kind of figure this stuff out. Uh, but sometimes the the ignorance is, is a good thing. Having young players who are just uh, running around like wild stallions out there and they end up uh, being the difference. So maybe some of those other teams are in a better spot. So, so Mike, the, the narrative with this Blues team, and you've seen it between last year and this year, has just been inconsistency. For a good stretch, they look like they're starting to get it, and then for the next stretch, they look like they, they forgot what the coaching staff has been asking them to do. You know Craig Berube. You've seen the success that he has had in the NHL as a head coach. Is there a point when you're a player or if you're looking at a team from the outside where you feel like that coach's narrative has been lost by the team? I mean, we always talk about this. Um, I think a job for a coach, and I'm not speaking on this situation because I don't know, I'm not inside that room, but Craig Brube is an incredible coach, and everybody I've ever talked to was like, this guy, you know, Robert, you'd love to play for this guy. Like, he's he keeps it real, he keeps you accountable. I think all those things are very important. So just speaking generically, um, that's a coach's job is to adjust, right? Like, your, your job is when you come in and coach, the message might have to be presented differently in year three and four than it was in one and two. And then when you get to years five and six, it might be differently from those other four years. Like, that, that's something that it, you have to evolve with it. You have to be creative with it. Sometimes it's um, having an assistant coach – that, that's, that hammers home a message a little bit more, picking your spots a little bit more. I mean, that's always something. I'm not a, I'm not a believer in coaches just kind of running their course and then players don't listen. If that's the case, then I don't think the coach has done enough to get the attention of, of the players. And, um, you know, I don't think that's the case here in St. Louis. Um, I, I think that the bigger struggle with this team is when I watch them, when we go back to 2019 – like, if we just said, what, did that, what, what was that team? We'd say it was a big team. Their defense defended well. The Jordan Bennington story was incredible. Um, they, had, they didn't really have necessarily the game breaker. I guess Vlad was the best game breaker they would have. But they had a lot of intangibles, right? Ryan O'Reilly. Like, they, they were a team that was going to play the right way, and you were going to have a hard time getting to their net because of their defense and their goalie was playing really well. So they were basically a big, mean team that played well defensively. Now when I look at this team, they're not that big, mean defense anymore. You know, so there's not that, and that's fine. But what are you? you know, there's that's the question that we've had, Mike. Who, who, who is yeah. this team? Do they have an identity? Yeah, so when you look, even last year, there's some nights where you watch the Blues, and I'm like, oh, this team's starting to, oh, okay, I can see now they're getting, they, they could be more of an offensive-driven team. I mean, this is maybe the Cairo Thomas time now. It's going to change. But then there's nights where, the scoring's not there, and there's no defensive structure, it feels like. And then it's like, well, what's their what's – their, you need to have a crutch. You need to have something to lean on. No matter what, every night, whether the play's going our way or not, at least we know what we are and we can lean into that. That's the biggest struggle, I feel like, with this team. And I don't know if it's just the personnel, the makeup. I don't know, you know how it is, but I don't know who they are. And I think that's the bigger concern. Mike, we appreciate the time, man. It's always great to be able to catch up with the people can watch you over at NHL Network. Follow all of your work as well on Twitter, at Rupper17. Thanks for hopping on with us today. We'll talk with you again soon, my friend. All right, thanks, fellas. Anytime. 
See you, Mike. Got it. That's Mike Rupp joining us as he does regularly from the NHL Network here on 101 ESPN. I think what he said there at the end, Alex, is something that we're going to be discussing a lot this season. Who yeah. are the Blues? Who do they want to be? Because I know what Craig Berube wants them to be. He's been very clear and candid about it. We need to be a team that is winning 2-1, to 3-2, to two, defensive-minded. We've got to be sound in our own zone. We've got to be structured. We've got to be a team that puts quality shots on net. We've got to be a team that does the cycle game. Like, all of the things that you would hear Craig Berube say, you would expect him to say. Can this team be that, though? Are they capable of being the team that he wants them to be? And if the answer turns out to be no, then what? Then who are you? What do you hang your hat on on a night-in, night-out basis? Because it sure as hell is not five-on-five offense. It could be maybe a rush team, but I don't think that's what Barubi wants. And if it is a rush team, what does that mean for you defensively, where you're going on the attack and then it's coming back the other way? What does that mean for Benner? I think there are a lot of questions right now about who are you, what can you be, what are you right now, and what are you going to be three years from now? And I think it has them stuck. It has them stuck in the middle of a bunch of different paths where they're just kind of a group of players that doesn't really seem to have any clear cohesive cohesive unit. Yeah, and I mean we might be able to get into this a little bit more, but this is my this is my bigger issue with this season is I'm not sure I, this this team is stuck in between. They have an idea of what they want, but I'm not sure they have the pieces that can get it done. And what I mean by that is you want to be a team that can fight for puck possession and win the battles in front of the net and score those dirty goals. Who's your power forward on this team? Who's the big body that can win those battles and earn those dirty goals that they want? I'm not sure they have those guys. So let's say that they're a transition team. If you're a transition team, you've shown signs of it, as Mike Rupp said, but when you're the transition team, your skill outbests the other team's defense. And I'm not sure the Blues have that skill yet on the ice that can do that. What are they closer to? I would say they're closer to the transition team, but to be the transition team, you've got to have defensemen on the blue line that can lead that play. When I think of transition teams in the NHL, I think of Vancouver, I think of Colorado, I think of New York. Those are three teams that I just named to you that have one of the best defensemen in the game. Quinn Hughes, Adam Fox, Kale McCarr. And this is why I went back to when we were talking earlier about the game breakers. I think the Blues' biggest issue right now is they do not have a game breaker defensively. Yeah. They've got a good one. I think Colton Perico is a good player. He's not a game breaker. But I'd also argue you got to have the guy that when you get those chances, you convert on them. And I have not seen I've yet. I've seen it from Kyrie. In the past, yes, but I haven't seen it on it's a consistent basis. If we're going to judge a player based on eight games, then we're going to have a bunch of Hall of Famers that don't end up becoming what we no, all expect them I, to I be. I completely know? agree with you, but I, when you know you've got the game breakers, every single time those moments happen, you're thinking, oh, bleep. And I'm not sure we feel that way so far this season with Jordan Kyrie. Maybe not. I, I think it's a very small sample size, and we are overreacting a bit to that. But I think Kapanen can be one of those guys. I think Buchnevich can be that guy. I think Saad has played it well at, at his best when he's been in uh, in transition this year. Kairou certainly can be that. Verona, that's the only way he knows how to play at this point in his career. Uh, I, I think those are all guys that have the ability, Robert Thomas certainly, uh, of being rush players. 
The problem is you're kind of stuck in between once again. Mm. Where, okay, but you have Braden Chin on this team. Is he a rush guy? I, I don't think so. That's probably not the way that he's best utilized. Is Kevin Hayes utilized most in the rush? No, certainly not. That's that's not the case for him. Who's that third player with Hayes and Verona? Well, right now it's Torpchenko. I, I I guess you could say he's a rush player technically, but <laughs> but like that's the thing. You've got tweeners with guys. Yeah. I mean, like Torpchenko, you look at him and say, yeah, he's a, he's a rush guy, but he's six foot five, and you're thinking. Okay. And he doesn't have the skill to be a rush player. Let's just be honest, man. Yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing with your defenseman getting involved. Like, we talk all the time. Like, the key for this offense to be successful is getting your, your defenseman involved. Well, if you're going to play that way, you're going to have to have guys who win battles in front of the net. You're going to have to have some bodies in front that can allow those defensemen to get into the offensive zone and take shots from the blue line. But if you're not a team that wants to play that power forward, that big body size where you're winning the battles in front of the net, well, then you can't play that way. You're going to have to play more along the rush side of things. Watch the New Jersey Devils tonight when they play. New Jersey is the prototypical transition rush team. They've got defensemen who jump into play. They've got Luke Hughes. They've got Dougie Hamilton. They've got Siegenthaler that jump up into the play, but they do that because they've got players who come into the zone that earn those puck possession battles but yet they keep the play going. And I'm not sure the Blues have that, and they also don't have the big body. So you're in this you're in this purgatory that's like, man, we want to be this team, but yet we're not there yet, and we try to be this team, but we don't have the personnel to, to, to do that. Someone on the text line said, guys, I would like to see what Perunovic can do for all of these different reasons. He might not be Makar, he might not be Quinn Hughes, but can we, can we at least find out? Everything you just said is why I want to find out. Yep. And I, I think they're going to get to the point this year where they're probably going to have to do that. But right now, the coach clearly believes this is their best opportunity to win. And until they're kind of eliminated, I, I think that's going to be what they continue to do. Yep. I think they're banging their head against the wall, hoping that eventually the wall breaks. And my fear is that they're just going to continue crushing their head into yeah. the wall. Well, and, and I mean, you kind of have to, to – you you say it all the time, like listen to their actions, not their words. Like, first of all, Craig Bruby basically told Jeremy Rutherford. He tweeted it out, saying like, "Look, he's just got to wait for his opportunity to play. He's got to be patient. He hasn't played a lot of games." But on the other side of that one, like, also look at Scott Perunovich. Like, they're not using him in a role that he can jump on. That like the time on ice that he has gotten so far this season. Eleven minutes. Yeah, sir. we're talking about and we're talking about him being used as a seventh defenseman. Like the power play time he's getting, he's being used on the second unit that's getting thirty seconds on the ice. He's being used in a role to where he's not really getting that sustained offensive zone time. And this isn't me bashing Craig Berube. This is the personnel you have. You've got Krug. You've got Letty. All of these guys are supposed to be those offensive zone players. It can be a, it can be a question of Barubi without criticizing him, but like questioning yeah. whether or not what they're doing currently is the best use of the personnel. I think it is okay to be skeptical of things, to ask questions of, is this really the right way to go about this? The, again, the, we might end up being wrong, and Craig Barubi might end up doing exactly what they should be doing right now, and it is a genuine personnel issue. But it's okay to be skeptical of things in my mind. If you, if if we aren't, if we never question anything, then honestly, what are we doing here? You know, well, we're just spewing nonsense. That's what we're doing. Coming up next, Mizzou has a chance to create a moment tomorrow afternoon, and if they do, it'll be one we don't soon forget. We'll talk about it here on 101 ESPN.
We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 101 ESPN Sports Center. Saturday showcase on tap for Mizzou. Good afternoon. I'm Bradford Bruns, and this Sports Center update is brought to you by Saliga Heating and Cooling. Tomorrow in Athens, number 14 Missouri faces the biggest challenge of its 2023 campaign to date. Undefeated Georgia hosting Eli Drinkwitz and company. MU following the bye week has a largely clean bill of health. Cody Schrader is probable, while Brady Cook does not have an injury designation. Pucks, the Blues return home this evening and will try to turn things around versus New Jersey. St. Louis has been outscored 9-1 to over its last two games combined. Face-off set for 7 p.m. right here on 101 ESPN. Only one other tilt appears on the NHL's evening docket, actually Philly visiting Buffalo. This Sports Center update was brought to you by Saliga. Heating and cooling, an independent American standard heating and air conditioning dealer. More Blues Talk, more often. 101 ESPN is live from the Centene Community Ice Center. Brought to you by Bud Light and E&B Granite. Bernie Federko's only choice for granite countertops, cabinets, and flooring. Alongside Alex on BK, we got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And Missouri has a chance to upset the apple cart in college football this weekend. Alex, there are very few opportunities for schools to legitimately have a where were you when blank happened. This is one of those opportunities for the University of Missouri. I'm going to go back. It's a little bit more than a decade ago. It's Saturday game, Texas A&M going into Alabama, this 20, uh, 2012 season. And it's late November at the time. Johnny Manziel has become this national sensation for what he's done so far uh, down in College Station. Uh, Texas A&M's going into Tuscaloosa, and nobody really gives them a shot. They're like a 13-point underdog in this game. It's fun what Johnny Manziel's doing. It's the first year Texas A&M's in the SEC. But, man, this is Bama. And you got to remember, this isn't the current version of Alabama. This is what Alabama was when it was a machine, where nobody beat Alabama. In the previous three seasons combined, Alex, they had been defeated twice at home both of which were against top two teams, top two teams in the country. Once it was LSU, the other time it was Cam Newton's Auburn team. They just did not lose at home. And then Texas A&M goes into Tuscaloosa, and that is the last time that we have seen the number one ranked AP team in the country lose at home. It's been more than a decade. I remember exactly where I was when it happened. And I'm not even a Texas A&M fan. I had gone that weekend to Knoxville. I was in Tennessee for the Mizzou versus Tennessee game. You went to the wrong place, man. The game wasn't there. It was a double overtime game. You may remember it if you're a Missouri fan as the Doriel Green-Beckham game. That was his breakout game where he showed you, okay, this is the guy that we've all been waiting for. Well, later on that afternoon, it was the uh, Texas A&M versus Alabama game. I was sitting at a restaurant right on the river over in Knoxville as I was um, pulling in. It was about halftime, and by the time that we were kind of finishing up our dinner, uh, the game had concluded. We all looked around like, I can't can't believe what I just witnessed. There's a few other games that immediately come to mind for me like that where it's a national game, like Appalachian State beating Michigan. I'll never forget watching that game. I will never forget Michael Crabtree, the end of the game, coming down with the game-winning touchdown against the University of Texas. I think that was like 2008 when that happened. That's 15 years ago. I remember exactly where I was, who I was with, everything about that moment. If you're a Missouri fan, 
2007, beating Kansas, you remember exactly where you were for that. 2010 against Oklahoma, you remember exactly where you were for that. 2013, Georgia, Colt 45 game, you remember exactly where you were for that. There haven't been a whole lot of those moments for Missouri football in the last decade. And Alex, if we're being honest, this team's probably not going to the college football playoff. They're probably not playing for a national championship because there's like five teams every year that are actually playing for that. Everybody else, it's about these games. It's about having the opportunity for you and your son or you and your dad or you and your wife, whoever it is that you watch these games with, to sit around the television, watch your favorite football team, and hopefully they give you that moment, that memory that you get to lean back on for the rest of your life. That's what tomorrow is about for the Missouri Tigers, is the ability to have one of those moments that comes around once every decade. That's what tomorrow could be. I don't know if they're going to pull it off, man. I would say the odds are strongly against them being able to do so. But if they do, and you're a Missouri fan, and you get to watch this, that is how you'll remember it. You'll remember it as one of those very rare games that has happened once in the last decade where you can honestly say, I will never forget where I was. I will never forget who I was with when that happened. Yep. That's what tomorrow's about. Uh, you know, if you th- if you think of this big picture, like on the Georgia Bulldog side, this is just another game to them. This is just a blip on the radar that they're like, hey, we got to get through this to get to the next one so that we could get to the college football championships. For Mizzou, and look, Luther Burden, probably going to be an NFL wide receiver, probably going to get drafted. I'm not sure how many other guys on this team are going to be in that scenario. Maybe some. This is the biggest game for all of them in their football careers. And for Eli Drinkwitz, this is the biggest game of your career. Mm -hmm. And maybe you have a bigger one by the end of this season. Maybe by the end of your time in Mizzou, you have a bigger one than than this. But this is, not to get all coach speak here, but this is the moment to show up. This is the moment that, you know, you work all for. They use the STP logo. You know, you go into a game like this, and even if you keep it competitive, that's something to hang your hat on. If you go into this game and you don't show up, you don't see any of this offense, or you lay an egg like you did last year in the second half or you feel like you're doing something that is going to be monumental for this team, anything you do from here is going to be the legacy that you provide for the Missouri Tigers. And I like that. I like the fact that one team, this is a blip on the radar, and another team, they realize this is the biggest game of their career. And coming into this segment, I was thinking, okay, like what's the one area that you're concerned about this matchup? I'm concerned about Mizzou being able to close this game out. Because if they get the lead, which I think they can, they have the offense to get the lead, can you close it out against this Georgia Bulldogs team? And that right there is going to be the moment that you just kind of laid out perfectly. You painted the picture of your remembering this with you and your family, significant other, whatever it is, as the moment Mizzou found a way to close out the game against the Georgia Bulldogs. Yeah, I don't care how you do it. You can win this game 3-2. to two. You can win this game 2-0. to nothing. You can win this game 100-95. 3-2 I, would be interesting. I, it would be a wild way to go about <laughs> it. Um, I, I really don't. I, it doesn't matter. This is, I said it earlier this season against Kansas State, it's a pass-fail game. And, like, a failure is not necessarily losing 27-24, right? It's, it's Georgia. This is a different type of game. Like, they've, they've won, I think it's 25 consecutive games. Um, they've won, like, 40 of their last 42 home games. This, this is the type of team you, you dream about beating, but you wake up from that dream and realize it was nothing more than a dream because, it, in reality, that's not how it goes. You, you don't beat this team on their field. But Mizzou's capable. 
Mizzou's got the explosive playmakers on the outside to be able to get things done through the air. Cody Schrader has been excellent yeah. at closing games out so far this season. Brady Cook is a more than capable quarterback. We've now seen Missouri win in multiple different ways. We've seen them win a shootout against Kansas State. We've seen them get pretty damn close to winning a shootout against LSU and falling just short at the end of that one. We've seen them win by multiple scores against quality SEC opponents like Kentucky. So we've seen them win in different ways now, and it's going to require all of those things that I just mentioned against Georgia. You got to be able to run the ball. You got to be able to have some explosives through the air. You have to prevent the turnover from happening. Yeah. You have to create takeaways. You might have to score in this game on special teams or defense because when you look back at the recent history of beating these top-ranked opponents, that's typically something that happens. But you said it right. The most important part of this game is getting off to an early lead. Yeah, Take the air out of that stadium. Get those fans feeling like, oh, wait, this doesn't happen. This yet. isn't the old Mizzou we remember. This, this isn't supposed to happen in Athens. We don't lose these games. We don't get down 10 to nothing to Missouri. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. That's the kind of thing that has to start. And then from there, everything else has to happen in your way. There's like a million different coin flips that all have to go in your direction repeatedly. I know how that goes because I've had those go in the opposite direction of me in sports betting so far this year. Hopefully tomorrow, for Missouri's sake, it can go in their direction for the first time in quite some time. This is a moment game. This is a remember win game. And Missouri fans don't get those very often. So hopefully tomorrow ends up being one of those for you. For Alex, I'm BK. We've got uh, Bradford Bruns back in the studio for us today. He's filling in for Tanner Hendrickson. Coming up next, we're getting back to baseball with Tim Britton, baseball writer for The Athletic. He's the one that put up all the contract projections for the top free agent starting pitchers on the market. Who does he think could be the guy that ends up getting paid more than what he's currently projected? Well, that's Tim Britton next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Bradford Bruns back in the studio for us today. Tanner Hendrickson is out. He'll be back in early next week. He's getting a nice weekend out in Nashville for himself, more than deserved. And right now, we're going out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Tim Britton. You can find his work over at The Athletic. We have cited his work many a times here on the show, especially as we go to his Major League Baseball contract projection machine. He is the one that we have been citing over the last few days for the Athletics baseball contract projections for this offseason. Tim, we appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Uh, doing really well. So here in St. Louis, it has been said multiple times over by the front office that they're looking for pitching, pitching, and more pitching going into this offseason. And that's really the only place where this free agent market appears to be pretty decent. As you took a look into the pitchers that are available, especially on the starting side of things, Tim, how would you categorize this free agent market? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly way better on the pitching side of things than the position player side of things. Uh, if you're St. Louis, you know, it, it's never comfortable going into an offseason wanting to sign three different pitchers and, and probably needing to sign your number one, number two, and number three. Uh, but, but this is not a bad offseason to be doing that. You know, there's no – I don't think there's really a slam dunk number one starter here. I think most people would probably rank 
Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the, the best available starting pitcher, in part because he's only 25 and you don't see starting pitchers hit the open market at 25 ever. Uh, and so that, that's his main carrying tool. And, and look, he's been better in uh, Japan than pretty much anyone who's ever come over here. Uh, better than Masahiro Tanaka was before he signed his huge deal with the Yankees. Uh, a fair amount better than Kodai Senga was before he signed his deal with the Mets and, you know, might get Cy Young votes off of his rookie season last year. So I think Yamamoto is probably at the top of the class, but then you've got a guy in Blake Snell who's probably going to win his second Cy Young this year, does it in a different kind of way, uh, a way that not everybody loves to watch, but gets the job done. And then, you know, Aaron Nola is kind of the, the other side of it where the guy does really – Pretty consistent results, gives you innings, makes every start. He hasn't missed a start for injuries since May of 2017, uh, which is uh, just a crazy run. Uh, and so, like, those, those three guys are probably at the top of the market. But even below that, you've got Sonny Gray, who had more wins above replacement than anyone uh, on this list uh, in free agency from the pitching side of things last year. You've got Jordan Montgomery, who you guys are familiar with, obviously, in St. Louis. Uh, and you've got a lot of kind of those depth options of, of guys who might fit who have had good seasons and have had bad seasons, and you, you try to hit on the, the right ones. Tim, I want to hone in on Yamamoto because he, of course, is a player in St. Louis that Cardinals fans are really adamant about the Cardinals pursuing. And I'm asking this question because you are you cover the New York Mets, so you're, you, you have that intel on that team. Are we talking about a Mets team, a Yankees team, these big markets going heavy after a Yamamoto? And do you think the Cardinals can kind of stay in the race with those teams? Yeah, you know, like that, that's the thing that's hard to gauge about uh, a guy like Yamamoto is because of the age, because he's only 25, he fits for so many more teams than a usual guy you're talking about a $200 million deal for. You know, he fits for more teams than Shohei Otani because there's only so many teams that are going to pay $400, $500 million for Otani. There are a a larger number of teams that that will be willing to spend probably the $200 million it takes for Yamamoto. So, you know, if you're the Mets, for instance, they're a team that has said, you know, maybe we're not going to go all out in free agency this year the way we have the past couple. But, hey, this is a 25-year-old. He fits your timeline, too. Uh, If you're a team that is kind of on the, the rise coming up, and maybe you're not ready to sign uh, Aaron Nola because by the time you're going to be good, he's going to be on decline. Well, here's a guy who fits your timeline better. Uh, so I think that's going to be the, the interesting thing with Yamamoto's market is, is it driven just by the usual suspects, uh, the Dodgers at the top, the Mets, the Yankees, or are there more teams that, are, that say, hey, this is the rare opportunity to get in on the ground floor of an, a, a guy who's shown great results uh, in Japan and, and can do that here, uh, and we're going to spend a little bit more because of that. You're getting more prime years because of that. Tim, we had somebody on the text line say, guys, asked him how his predictions did last year. I'm not going to have you toot your own horn, but I'll go ahead and do it for you. Your predictions were remarkably similar to the contracts that were actually given out via the pitching side of things last year. Like Rodon, you had at five years and 160. He got six and 162. Verlander, you had right on with a two and 87. Bassett, you had three and 67. He ended up going for three and 63. If there is somebody on this list that you think you were low on, that he will end up getting more than what you're projecting him to receive. Who do you think that is most likely to be? Uh, there's a few that stand out. I think Yamamoto and, and Shota Imanaga, who's the other pitcher who, who's coming over from Japan. You know, I haven't done this for uh, pitchers coming over from Japan before. So uh, I'm a little less certain on how they'll be valued, how teams look at the posting fee, you know. I projected Yamamoto for seven years and $203 million. That includes that, – that's – 
there's a $32 million posting fee on top of that. So it's really seven for 235 from a team perspective. Uh, but, you know, I can imagine his contract going even higher because, again, of his age. Uh, the, the other guy is, is maybe Jordan Montgomery, who I said for five and 105. That's kind of where he fits statistically. But because of the way he finished his season, uh, I think he changed a lot of people's perspectives of him uh, and, and the way he performed in the playoffs. So it wouldn't be a surprise to me if, if teams looked at the prices for Blake Snell and looked at Jordan Montgomery and said, you know what, there's not as, as big a difference there as, as you might think. And, and Montgomery ends up at five for 115, five for 120, maybe even a sixth year. What about the inverse of that? Who's the guy that you put down the projection? And you're like, man, I, I could just see this where teams aren't as interested as we expect them to be. Who, who is that guy for you? Uh, the, the one that surprised me when I looked at it statistically was Lucas Giolito. I, I projected him at four for $70 million. And I'll be honest, you know, like when I go into this, I, I just kind of think like, okay, what off the top of my head, what should this guy get? And with Giolito, it was like, you know, two years, $30 million, something like that. Uh, and then you look at the numbers and you say, okay, this is a guy who's, who's pretty consistently healthy. Uh, at his worst, he's giving you innings, which is something that every team can use. And he's, you know, two and three years removed from being one of the better pitchers in the American League. So you can say his floor isn't that bad. His floor is not, you know, where he's not pitching for you at all. Uh, and his ceiling is still, he's not that far removed from it. You can explain away the struggles he had down the stretch last season with being traded to, to Anaheim and then being waived and sent to Cleveland. Like, that's a, that's a weird season for him. Before that, he, he had been pretty good with the White Sox. So, I, you know, I think I can talk myself into <laughs> the projection I got to, but I know when I, I sat down, I said, you know, maybe it's this. Man, I, I don't know that I would spend that right off the bat, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see how, how the market goes for him. So, Tim, when I look at Aaron Nola, because that's the other one that, that Cardinals fans, me included, is very high on because they need top-of-the-rotation stuff, and Nola has provided it. But with your projection looking at about $30 million per year, is the juice worth the squeeze with Nola at that year with that amount of money? It really depends on how you look at uh, kind of his last three seasons. You know, you, you, obviously you value the innings he gives you and that availability that we talked about. But you say, man, two of the last three years, he has been his ERA has been higher than the league average, which is not what you want. Um, but then you look at what he did in the playoffs and you say, okay, like the stuff is still there. The strikeout rate's down a little bit. It, it's He's not you know, going to have his prime season. He's probably not going to win you a Cy Young. Uh, he's not going to be in the top three the way he was in, what, 20, 2018, I think, with the Phillies. Um, you know, maybe he's not that guy quite again. I, I think he was a fourth-place finisher in 2022. Um, but, you know, that that he's maybe not your prototypical ace, but he's, he's a very good 1A, 1A or 1B, the way he's been with Zach Wheeler in Philadelphia. Uh, so I, I think you know, when you're when you're paying for for pitchers in free agency, you're going to pay uncomfortable prices. Um, and I think there there's a lot of people who say uh, that you know those contracts never work out. And then you look at the guys who have signed the biggest deals in free agent history as pitchers, and often either they win a Cy Young or their team wins a World Series. You look at you know David Price in Boston didn't seem like it worked out. His team won the World Series. He might he was as good as anyone in that postseason for them. Uh, you look at Max Scherzer in Washington, Justin Verlander, that Detroit contract, he won a Cy Young and a World Series. It just happened in Houston. Um, you know, Zach Greinke in Arizona didn't feel like that contract would work out. He was pitching in Game 7 of the World Series, again, for another team, but still performing really well. Uh, so I think those contracts work out better than a lot of people think they do reputationally. 
Tim Britton is our guest here on 101 ESP, and he covers the Mets for The Athletic, writes about baseball, though, overall, and had his projections on what he expects pitchers to get. They were very, very accurate last offseason, so we've been using them to kind of talk about some of these free agents going into this offseason. Tim Britton, our guest here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Tim, the other thing that I did want to ask you a little bit about is if – if I put you in John Mosellock's shoes for a moment, right? We all do this going into the offseason. What, what would I do if I was in this spot? If I said, Tim, you've got $50 million as your budget, and you've got to go out there and add two starters via this free agent market. We're going to trade for one other guy, but we're going to get two starters via this free agent market. How, who would you be targeting? How would you allocate that money? Um, you know, I, I think – the, the guy who I think might be undervalued a little bit is Sonny Gray because of the way he performed. You know, he was, like I said, as good as anyone on this list last season uh, with Minnesota, and it's not going to take quite as much to get him. Um, you know, you can finagle. He's probably going to get like a three-year deal. Uh, I think I predicted him at three years and, and $72 million. Uh, if you want to give him a fourth year, you can lower that average annual value or, or, or tinker with it that way. But I think he's a guy who's, again, probably not your – prototypical number one horse at the top of a rotation you know there's like three or four of those guys in baseball anymore um i don't know i don't know who behind garrett cole you 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 classify as that so i I think gray would be a good target and then i think you know you play in the market for nola you see where that goes uh you know he's another guy that maybe it doesn't take quite 30 million dollars a year or maybe you give him a seventh year to lower the, the average annual value uh, and if that doesn't work out, then I probably look at, at Jordan Montgomery because uh, I, you know, I think if you're looking at fifty million dollars as your cap, I don't know that you can afford uh, Yamamoto, especially with the posting fee. Tim, final one from me in terms of bullpen arms, because this is another area that the Cardinals really need some help in. Who intrigues you that's available with their expected contract in mind? Other than Hater, they're, they're yeah. Not don't going say Hater route. because <laughs> nobody wants that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think. Uh, honestly, Jordan Hicks is, is really intriguing just because it seemed like it finally came all together for him. I, I'm sure you guys don't want to hear that that much. That <laughs> I really right don't, Tim. Alex doesn't. I like Jordan Hicks. I like guys that throw 102 in his bat suddenly. I've ridden that mechanical bull, Tim, and it kicks me off every time. Why get back on it again? And, and I, I do think like that that'll be an interesting like I'm interested in how many years he gets. Like what I, I feel like there's probably one team that really buys into that. I also thought that he was going to get more at he was going to bring St. Louis back more at the trade deadline than he ultimately did in that deal with Toronto because of that. Uh, the other guy is, is probably Robert Stevenson uh, just because of what he looked like down the stretch in Tampa. You know, the, the ERA was like two, eight or something uh, over the final three months with the Rays. Uh, but the strikeout rate was ridiculous. The whip was, was really good. You know, it's always a question of like how much of that is real in a small sample reliever uh, appearance. Uh, and especially when it's like with Tampa Bay or with, with the Dodgers, like, you know, how much can you carry over from those teams that always get the best out of their guys? Uh, but if, if part of that is real, then, then you can get a, a really good uh, late, late game reliever uh, on the open market. Tim, we'll get you out of here on this. One of the guys that we've talked a lot about this offseason is Tyler Glass now. He's got a one-year deal worth $25 million. Now, he's he's not a free agent, of course. He's going to be available via the trade market. But And I know this is a tough spot to put you in because you haven't done the research. But if, if you had to project just based on your own beliefs, what do you think he would get if he was a free agent this offseason, Tyler Glass now? Ooh, uh, I mean – I'm trying to because he had a very good year this year and he missed the, the previous season or most of it. Um, I would say, I mean, that that's probably 
Uh, I'd have to look up exactly how old he is uh, to, to determine the length of the deal, but I would think it's probably something in the range of, of 25 ish million dollars per season for four year, four-ish years, something like that, just off the top of my head, um, four for 100. Um, but, but maybe more than that, you know, obviously the potential is there, and, and we've seen him when he's healthy. Uh, he's about as good as anyone, uh, but uh, there's, there's still some health risks health risks there uh, with him and, and really with a lot of guys who, who have pitched for Tampa Bay lately. Yeah, going in, going into his age 30 season this upcoming year, it, it feels like he has not been around that long because he doesn't pitch very many innings, which goes back to that injury <laughs> risk that you were discussing there. But um, he's, he's a little bit older than maybe uh, some would expect. Hey, Tim, this has been great, man. We've been using a lot of your projections on the show for the last couple of years. Uh, always enjoy when they come out. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today and enjoy the offseason season man oh no i really appreciate it thanks so much and and it's going to be a fun one in st louis and a whole lot of other places too <laughs> you, are, you are lying certainly for your mets as well thanks so much for hopping on with us that is tim Britton, baseball writer for the athletic joining us here on 101 espn if you want to find his work go over to the athletic click on the mlb tab that's where all of these projections are you can also follow him on twitter at his name tim Britton. b-r-i-t-t-o-n Alex, after hearing what he had to say about some of these contracts and what you're expecting them to be projected, who could come in above, who could come in below, anything change for you in terms of your outlook? Maybe Sonny Gray because of that three-year 72 mil. Uh, also giving Aaron Nola that seventh year to lower the AAV. I think that's how you make a successful offseason. Seven years, hopefully you can get like a $25 million AAV for Aaron Nola. And if we're talking three by 72, maybe you go four years with Sonny Gray to add, to lower that to like what it would yeah, be, 21. Yeah. something like that. Uh, that would be, look, and again, I understand that in years five, six, seven, six, seven with Aaron Nola and year four with Sonny Gray are going to suck, but I'm not going to be a hypocrite and sit here and act like they shouldn't do that because that gives you the best bang for your buck to make your whole roster complete because now you'll have a little extra money to go get that bullpen arm, but it also gives you the two best pitchers available. I'm with him on Yamamoto. The more I think about it, the more I just think he's going to get a ton of money, a, a ton of money. And that's why I asked about the New York Mets, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Giants, the Dodgers. Like You're going to be... You're going to be going eight years, $250 million total for this guy, and I don't know if I'm going to do that. 25 years old. We just saw a guy come over this year in, in Kodai Senga and pitch like one of the best pitchers in all of Major League Baseball, and we're not expecting him to get a bleep ton of money when he is the best pitcher to come out of Japan in 15 years. Yeah. Like we, why? why? Why would we think that? So I think he's the guy that ends up getting paid way more than what any of us are expecting him to, and I'm with you. I I continue to believe that Sonny Gray is going to be this team's top target. I think he is the first one that they sign this offseason, as if, long if he's as, willing to sign. As him. long as you're not giving him $30 million, I'm in. I'm, I'm all in on Sonny Gray. Somebody texted in asking, like, why isn't he considered a top-tier pitcher? I, probably because of the lack of postseason success, but I don't think that really changes a, a top-tier pitcher when you look at his numbers overall. Again, he's not a number one, but he's a number two. And if I'm giving that number two $20, 25000000 million for four years, I'm all aboard. Coming up next, we're going to get back into the Missouri Tigers going into this weekend. It's a big game for them at Georgia. What else is going on in the SEC around them, though? We'll discuss it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Big game tomorrow in college football. One of the headliners is Missouri taking on Georgia down in Athens. It's a 15 and a half point line in favor of the Bulldogs. Everybody's going to be expecting Georgia to win this one. Even Missouri fans are thinking about it saying, hey, listen, we understand. The likelihood is we're going to go down to Georgia, we'll lose, and then we'll end up being able to control our own fate to hopefully finish second in the East this year based on what they do against Tennessee and Florida. We all get that. But they do have a chance. I mean, they have as good of a chance as anybody else has so far this year against Georgia. And this is not the same team that we've seen just destroy everybody in recent seasons. Georgia did struggle earlier this year when they went up against Auburn. Now, it was on the road, but they won that game by one score. They did have their moments last week against Florida where it was like, okay, maybe this will be interesting. And then it, it just, they just <laughs> completely shellacked them by the end. If Missouri's going to win this game against Georgia, Alex, what do you think they need to do? What are some of the things that are non-negotiables in this one against Georgia? You're going to have to score first because I think if you're playing from behind, you're going to be in you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you're going to have to get at least one significant turnover in this game, whether it's an interception, forced fumble, four and out, whatever it is, and you're going to have to score on the responding drive. And then for me, it's going to really come down to what you look like in the second half. I, I mean, this Mizzou team has. Even against LSU, they were the better team offensively in the first half. They found a way to keep Jaden Daniels significant or somewhat quiet, and then you, the dam just broke in the second half, and you didn't know how to get a stop. You're going to have to close out this game somehow. Your defense is going to have to be the best it's probably ever played if you're pulling out a victory in this game against Georgia. I think you need at least two takeaways in this one. You cannot take turn the ball over. The, the, I think that yeah. has to be a non-negotiable. I think you need Luther Burden to go for at least 100 yards in this game. You need him to be the same explosive player that he's been at times the rest of the season for the majority of the rest of the season. Your best player has to show up. I think you need Cody Schrader to go over 100 yards on the ground as well. To your point about closing out the game, that is the way you do it is by utilizing Cody Schrader like crazy. Yep. And I think you need five sacks. I think you need five sacks on Carson Beck because this year the only thing that has made this Georgia offense look – less than great is getting pressure on the quarterback if you're able to do that you're going to have an opportunity but I think that's the starting point and everything from there is just gravy on top but that's those are the non-negotiables for me going into this I, one against Georgia can I add one more two in this sure. one I need I need Eli Drinkowitz to show the cojones that he's shown at time this season all game like in any tight spot I don't think you can be passive I think you have to be to the point where you say not bleep this we're going for it because that's the only way you're going to beat Georgia if it's fourth and one and you're midfield and you're like my we, we should just punt it no you can't be afraid to lose by two scores you got to be willing to win yep and those are the kinds of decisions that I have been frustrated by in the past with Eli Drinkwitz this is not a game I don't think that is going to be won 17 to 13 yeah I think you're going to have to score 30-plus points in order to beat Georgia on the road in this one, and the way that you do that is by stealing possessions. And to steal possessions, you got to get takeaways, you got to prevent the turnovers, and you got to extend drive. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's play a game of one's got to go. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us four options. We'll tell you which one's got to go. Alex, let's start with this. One's got to go. Appetizer edition. Crab Rangoon, egg roll, potstickers, or steamed 
dumplings. Which one's got to go? Man, I was about to say egg rolls got to go, but steamed dumplings? You're not a dumpling guy. Eh? No. God, there's nothing more infuriating than when my wife says, let's eat chicken and dumplings for dinner. And I say, why? Because I'm going to be hungry later. It's not good. I don't like egg rolls. But at least it's fried. I don't do anything steamed, so yeah, that's gotta go. Yeah, I'd probably go with the dumplings as well. See, I'm, I'm a big pot stickers guy. Those big are pot stickers. So correct. Those are like kind of like the crab rangoons essentially, but you just like put stuff in the middle of it. Am I understanding I these mean, correctly? Not really. No, it it's like a it's almost like an empanada, but it is Asian style, and instead of it being fried, oh, it's okay, put yeah. into the big, yeah. Also fried, yeah. These are delicious. Yeah, they're, they're really, 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 really good. Those are uh, some of my favorites. All right, one's got to go sandwich style. Italian beef, Reuben, Philly cheesesteak, or French dip? Oh, this is Reuben for me. I, I have gotten into a French dip You don't like craze. Reuben's? No, it's the corned beef, right? Oh, I love it. I'm never. You can get it in different ways. I pastrami, don't like corned beef. Corned beef. You could uh, typically. I, I go pastrami. Pastrami's but. good. I, I guess I just don't really typically get Rubens because I like all of those other ones. Italian beef is like the the gold standard of these sandwiches. Um, but I'm in a French dip phase right now where I make this like weekly on Hawaiian rolls at home and my wife loves it. Yeah, I'm not a big French dip guy. Really? No, I oh, could go man. ahead and put that put out. Put it in the au jus. Ooh, let's get to work. My wife loves gentlemen. those. I'm not much of a French dip guy. I would much rather have the other three options that are available here. The here's, Italian beef, the Reuben, or the Philly Here's the thing dip. with Reuben. You gotta get it from a good spot that's got the right meat. Like if you get like that, yeah, that I think that's any any sandwich. True, but like you could, but you could use like different types of like salami or turkey or ham, and like with the the beef, like you could get different types of beef. If you get like some cheap version of pastrami, oh, the same thing's true of the Italian beef though. If you get a bad Italian beef sandwich, it's yeah, but you you coat it with everything else, and I don't think you could do that with the uh, with the Reuben. I mean, the Reuben's got the what's it called? Uh, Cheese and the Dijon mustard on it. Yeah, well, sure, yeah, both of those. But what's the why am I drawing a blank on what it's called? Um, I don't know, because it's a trash sandwich. That's probably why. Yeah, sauerkraut. Oh, yeah, that's sauerkraut. even worse. Oh. You don't like sauerkraut? Oh, oh well, God, no wonder no. you don't like uh, God, no. That, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Your breath smells awful after you eat that. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for One's Gotta Go. Got a lot of food options this week. One's Gotta Go, food edition for a football game. Tacos, cheeseburger, hot wings, or pizza? Tacos, cheeseburger, God, all these hot wings, or pizza? Probably the cheeseburger because all of those other ones, like I can make in a quick second to just throw it together and get it ready for uh, for, a, for a football game. The others are like endless appetizers or like endless foods. Once you eat the burger, it's gone. It's like, okay, well, now what am I going to do? I'm going to be hungry in three you hours. Do sliders. Slash not a burger, though. True. Sli- I mean, sliders are different. Yeah. Like little like White Castle things. They're the same thing. Nah, it's a burger is a burger. Sliders are like a lot of burgers. If you would have said sliders, I don't know what I would have gotten rid of. <laughs> what? Okay. Oh, um, man. You got to have rules when it comes to food. I, I I suppose. I would probably, like, for football games, get rid of the tacos. It's not fitting the vibe for Oh, my me. God. You're, I love you're tacos. the dude who loves tacos. I love tacos. So that's not the right vibe for them. It's not the right mean? scenario. I, how, how often are you eating tacos during football games? A lot. Really? It's simple. You got the, the pulled pork, whatever meat you're going to put in your taco. You got your tortillas. You got your toppings. And it's endless tacos. Yeah, see, that's not my that's not what I'm going you're, for there. You know what? You're a hypocrite. Uh, final one here for you. One's got to go holiday edition. New Year's, your birthday, 4th of July, or Christmas. Oh, this is easy. I would get rid of my birthday. I would get rid of my birthday, too. Birthdays easy. suck after your 21st. 
Yeah, you have I'm, your 21st, and then they don't matter. I'm going to Austin next week for my birthday, and it's not even because it's my birthday. It's just a weekend that worked for us. <laughs> Katie <laughs> asked me on my 33rd birthday in August, like, what do you want to do? I said, honestly, sleep. So, like, you go do something with the girls, and I'll sleep for a little bit. I, uh, Birthdays suck, man. I don't care about my yeah. birthday. It's just much. now it's like I'm a year closer to death. My wife loves her birthday. Oh, mine does too. Big deal. It's a week long thing. Casa de Kylie. It's a month long thing in Casa de Kylie. (laughs) Hot damn. (laughs) Luca's birthday will certainly be something that we celebrate in a significant way, but uh, for old BK, mm -mm, no. Yeah, I get more excited for my girls' birthdays now than I do my birthday. Coming up next, we're doing our NFL weekend look ahead. What's the matchup you're most looking forward to in the upset? What do you think we're going to see this weekend that is a legit upset in the NFL? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Exclusive Blues Talk. 101 ESPN is live from the Centene Community Ice Center. Brought to you by Bud Light and ENB Granite. Bernie Federko's only choice for granite countertops, cabinets, and flooring. NFL weekend look ahead. We've got a few different questions that we'll answer in this segment. The matchup you're most looking forward to, the upset you think we'll see, the team with the most to gain, the most to lose, all of that here in the next six minutes or so. A lot to get into, very little time to do it, Alex. So let's get right into this thing. What is the matchup that you're most looking forward to on Sunday? There's like three that matter. So which one would you like to choose? <laughs> well, I'm going to take away the two obvious ones here. No, because... you get one. No, I don't, I don't want to use it. Fine. I'm going to go one that's not an obvious one. I'm picking the Bills and Bengals. I, I think both teams are going to have a prove-it moment this weekend, mostly because Joe Burrow is healthy and now we're starting to see the best of him, and Josh Allen is not healthy, and their entire team is falling apart. So I think that's going to be a – changing of the guard in the AFC. So I'm going to take that one as my most interesting one. I actually agree with that one. I do find that to be the most compelling matchup because I think there is something about this Chiefs-Dolphins game that is lost by the fact that it's in Germany. I really do. I I think that if this game was in Kansas City or in Miami, we would get the best out of one of these two teams. But the Chiefs just got to Germany today. And they're playing on Sunday. Man, we know how this works with jet lag. They're not going to be at 100%. Dude, they looked exhausted in their press conference. Can you blame them? They just got there, and they're going straight out to practice. And by the end of the day today, they're going to hope to get back on their sleep schedule. The game will be played at 8.30 a.m. Central Time. Woof. Good luck. Good luck trying to get yourself into a good position to be ready to play that game. So I don't find that to be the most compelling matchup because it's where because of where it's being played. If it was here, that would easily be number one for me. Yeah. Since it's not, I'm going to the late afternoon slate. Cowboys at the Eagles. Mm-hmm. I think this game absolutely could determine the number one seed in the NFC this year. The Eagles have struggled at times against the Cowboys in recent years. I think this iteration of the Cowboys has more question marks about it, especially without having a legitimate number one cornerback to go up against A.J. Brown. 
this has the feeling of an A.J. Brown eruption spot. Now, every game has basically <laughs> felt like that this year, but especially against a Cowboys defense that doesn't have digs in the lineup. I think A.J. Brown has a big day. I think DeAndre Swift also has a big day on the ground. Eagles win this one big in 37 to 27. I think they end up winning wow. by two scores. All right, next thing up for you. Good luck answering this question because huh. it is hard to find one given the quarterback situation. Alex, what is the upset you think we're most likely to see this weekend? Uh, is it considered an upset? And I don't know what the line is. The Texans winning over the Buccaneers? No, they're the favorite. They're the favorite? Wow. Three-point favorite. There, there's the surprising one for you. So then I guess if I'm going to pick an upset, I'm taking the Seahawks over the Ravens. There you go. I think that's what, still a five-and-a-half-point spread as it was yesterday? It's six now. It's yeah. six. I think Seattle wins that game. And maybe I'm picking more with my heart than my gut because um, I picked that in our Pick'em Challenge. But I... Overall, consistently-wise, the Seahawks have been the better offense than the Ravens this season. And I know that sounds crazy after the last couple of weeks, but I also saw the first five weeks of the season, and Baltimore did not look that team. So I'm going to take Seattle as the upset one in this game. So there's not many options. No. The only games that are a greater than three-point spread going into these up, this upcoming weekend is Atlanta, three-and-a-half-point favorite against the Vikings. Cleveland is a 10-point home favorite against Clayton Toon and the Arizona Cardinals. And then you have the Browns as a 10-point favorite against the – or, excuse me, Browns against Cardinals, and then you've got the Saints against the Bears. Saints are an eight-point home favorite against the Bears. So given that those are my alternatives, I have to go with you. I think the only other game that I would go with is the team that I actually trust, and that's the Seahawks to beat the Ravens. I don't think they're going to win that game. I think the Ravens will, but if I've got to pick one, that would be the one that I find to be most likely. If it was any other quarterback than – than Clayton Toon playing in that Cardinals game, I might have picked the Cardinals because Agreed. Cleveland is – they're dysfunctional. If Josh Dobbs was playing in that game, I would have taken yeah. the Cardinals as my team 100%. to beat in this one. All right, what is the team that has the most to gain with a win this weekend in your mind, Alex? I think it's the Cowboys because the, the, the Cowboys have beaten middle-tier teams. They haven't really beaten the best of the best. Sure. And specifically a guy like Dak Prescott, who I'm very skeptical of. If you can go into Philly, a team that is ready for you, and they're, they don't like you, and go out there and show that, hey, even without certain players on our defense, even without, you know, Diggs as our secondary, the best guy out there, we're still going to show Philadelphia that we're here to play, and their offense proves it. So I would say Cowboys, because if you lose, now you're going to be viewed as a team that's not really a – a contender in the NFC, whereas if you win, you're going to be considered a Super Bowl team. Yeah, for me, it's the Bengals once again. They did this last week. I think they can do it again. Now, I think we know they're a legitimate threat once again. I said last week, coming off of that win against the 49ers, this is Joe Burrow's back. He's healthy. Jamar Chase is back. He's good to go. Like, this offense is what we thought it was going to be, and Lou Anarumo seems to have figured out how to utilize his pieces defensively. It takes a few weeks for him to do that, and once they do – you know exactly what you're getting out of the Bengals. So I think the Bengals once again have an opportunity to prove themselves. They're going up against what everybody believes to be one of the top contenders in the AFC. The Bills are 5-3 and three so far this year. Their losses have been troubling to me, but they still have Josh Allen. They still have Stephon Diggs. This is the kind of team that the Bengals need to beat in order to consider themselves to be one of the top contenders once again in the AFC. If they do so, man, the schedule starts to open up here pretty soon for them. They've got Houston, Pittsburgh, Indy, Minnesota, Cleveland. They've got some very winnable games down the stretch. This is the kind of game, though, that I want to see them win. Who's the team that is the most to lose 
this weekend in your mind, Alex? I think it's the Bills. If the Bills lose and probably expected to lose, you're done being considered a Super Bowl team. Like, you didn't do anything via trade deadline to benefit your team. Your team has blacked consistently. And if you lose to the Bengals, well, now you're probably, what, the fourth best team in the AFC behind the Chiefs, the Dolphins, the Bengals? Oh, fifth, because I'd put the Ravens above them if the Ravens sure. win. So so if you're Buffalo, you've got to win this game. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good one. I, if I was going to go with somebody that has a lot to lose, I probably would actually say it is the Cowboys because at some point you've got to be able to prove it against a legitimate threat in the NFC. So far this year, they just really haven't done that. When yep. they've gone up against the best teams on their schedule, they've been looked like a fr- they've looked like a fraud, especially when they've gone on the road. So far this year, they're week one. They go on the road and they beat the New York Giants. We now know New York is just terrible. <laughs> but then they lost on the road against Arizona. They lost on the road and got destroyed against San Francisco. They really struggled in that game against the LA Chargers. Now you're going on the road again against a team that you have had some success against in the past with Philadelphia, go show it to me. Go show it to me in this one and make me a believer once again. But I do fear they're going to go on the road, they're going to get exposed, and they're going to be the team that ends up taking a significant step back going into the weekend. That is our NFL weekend look ahead. If you guys missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is the place where you can go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Center. When you go there, you'll find our conversations with Mike Rupp and Tim Britton. Mike Rupp was excellent earlier today talking about the Blues' lack of a superstar on their team and how they can find one. Tim Britton was great, breaking down why his contract projections are what they are for the pitching market, where he thinks he might end up being a little low, where he thinks he might end up being a little bit high. Again, all of that on the podcast page today. Big weekend for the Blues, big weekend for the Missouri Tigers. We will talk to you guys on Monday at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next here on 101 ESPN.